0: The following is an encore presentation of Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Something something about 1968 uh, was a, an enormous punctuation mark in uh, not just American, but in world history. And I think that people uh, who were coming of age then uh, share that, that sentiment.
1: That's Robert Siegel, retired host of National Public Radio's All Things Considered, which he hosted for over 30 years. I sat down with Robert Siegel on a visit he made recently to the Northwest, and you'll hear what he had to say about broadcasting as we know it today and the future on this morning's Voices of Experience. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Also joining us today will be Adam Shepard, co-founder of Eight Ninths, a virtual and augmented reality firm. What is happening today and what will be happening in the future is nothing short of incredible. Well, if you haven't heard enough about the homeless crisis in the Seattle area, and around King County for that matter, and really up and down the West Coast and throughout the country, I'm just going to express a few thoughts and observations that I have about the matter. From what I am hearing from people out there, it's everybody understands that this is a very complicated situation. But the question that keeps coming up as to the latest round of head taxes and trying to solve this problem is just that. We have spent millions and millions of dollars over the last 10, 15 years on trying to solve this problem And it appears it is only getting worse question one what is the proposals that are now coming out again the head tax and the 80 million dollars that we see discussed about building short-term housing low-income housing how is that going to solve the problem when all the money we've spent so far when we haven't seen any marked improvement whatsoever i was not a big fan of ed murray however I do believe early on in his administration, he did something which we should consider doing here. And that's pulling together various people who have different views on a matter. And I'm talking about now the minimum wage in Seattle. Why can't we do the same for trying to take a look at homelessness? Let's bring in some very smart people to try to come to grips with this and come up with a wholesale recommendation that the citizens of Seattle or King County can get behind. It just seems so piecemeal and out of control. And every day that we drive by and see the homelessness situation the way it is, what can we do to help make this situation better for our city and of course the people who are living in tents? If you have any thoughts on this, I have a hotline phone number. Get a pen and paper and I'll give you the number. It's 425 653 166. You can call that number and just leave a message as to what you think we can do to help bring this problem. At least I don't think anybody thinks it's going to be stomped out entirely. but what can we do really to reduce the horrible situation we're in now? That phone number is 42565311664256531166. Again, welcome to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, back with Robert Siegel in just a moment. Robert Siegel. Who spent over 40 years with National Public Radio, 30 years hosting All Things Considered, a popular afternoon current event show, is my guest. He made my day. His calm and soothing voice made me feel all was right in the world. They are just a few observations that devoted listeners of Robert Siegel expressed. All Things Considered is the second most listened to show in the U.S. with over 14 million weekly listeners. I sat down with Robert Siegel on the campus of Washington State University. He was in Pullman to receive the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award. I asked Robert why he got into broadcasting in the first place. Was it to reflect what's going on in the world, or perhaps use it as a vehicle to change the world? For how much? That's a good question. It was. Um,
0: I mean, I, I did think that there was something lacking in radio as it was then, and I thought that. Uh, uh, one could do better, and the lessons I'd learned from from covering the big Columbia protests were that uh, official sources could be wrong or, or even dishonest in how they described events. In that case, it was the, the police bust, as we called it. Um, journalists, uh, too often, older ones at least, seem to rely only on the highest people in authority. Uh, so that uh, one famous local New York uh, TV journalist came on campus and asked his, uh, his fixer where the narcs were so we could get the scoop on what was happening. Totally, irrele- totally irrelevant to a big political protest. And I remember people um, coming on campus, this is 1968, and um, seeing the, uh, the, <laughs> the bizarre dress and unkempt look and long hair uh, of, uh, of the students around them, and thinking that this was part of the protest. People, um, people thought that that was part of the protest. Um, I, I remember whenever TV would come, they would, if there was a sort of radical mime troupe on campus, they would take pictures of it. It looked like the bizarre stuff of this foreign country that they were covering, this university campus. And to those of us who, who were part of the campus, that was just the wallpaper part, pattern, you know, of life. I mean, it was nothing. Uh, and people always looked unkempt and strangely dressed and had long hair. That was normal at the, at the college then, and, and I felt that um, it became important to me. I, I understood that, um, that uh, journalism, reporting, uh, often is based on whom you're reporting to. And at that age, I felt that a lot of the more senior reporters were coming to write about my generation for our parents, uh, not for us. And, uh, and that difference, and the fact that suddenly I felt radio could actually be important. Before that, I'd always assumed, well, the New York Times would would uh, report it well, and that would take care of it. They did a rather poor job, actually, of it. And what's more, I couldn't type well enough to be a newspaper reporter, I felt. So, uh, there you go. Here well, I, I was. To go so, with your strength there. I went and, with my strength. It was radio. <laughs>
1: well, Did a lot of people talk to you about your voice saying you should go into radio?
0: Someone, uh, when I was entering college, a classmate of mine who was also going up to the same college, said, boy, you know, I, I wanted to do some kind of uh, student activity because I would be commuting from downtown Manhattan to uptown Manhattan when I when I went, uh, well, at least for the first couple of years. And this friend of mine, I remember, told me, um, you should go to the radio station. You'd, you'd probably sound good on the radio. Listening to tapes of me from that time, I don't know what he had in mind. So I, it's painful for me to hear what I sounded like. <laughs> when I was young, I sounded a lot like somebody trying to sound a lot older. Uh, but someone did say that. And, um, and when I was anchoring the... Uh, the, the, well, the various protests and police actions, uh,
1: people remarked that I, that I sounded good on the radio. Well, you certainly have. You've just had that incredible delivery when you're on. It's, it's such recognition of your voice. You know exactly who it is. And back to Columbia University, because when you spoke last night and, and other discussions I've heard and, and read about you, that this obvious protest had a huge impact on yeah. you and, and, and launched your career in many ways. I just wonder, we fast-forward now, it's 2018, and you're looking at having these protests that were, were going on. How would it have been different now with social media and, and all that was going on then, if we fast-forward to now, if we had Twitter and, and all these things? Would it have been different, do you That's think? That's a
0: good question. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard for me to imagine. I mean, I think the, 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 the uh, defining act... Of the Columbia protesters was to take this step of seizing buildings and, uh, and occupying them, and um, I guess that would have happened. I mean, if, if if that happened today, that that physical step which they took, which in, in some ways was kind of strange, since the, the university wasn't uh, responsible for the ills that uh, that everybody was protesting against, but the perception was well, it was part of the you know it was it was part of the system and was part of the establishment. So that to me, if if that were to happen today, that would be consistent and part of the same thing. I assume had there been social media, that would have happened even faster, although it happened pretty quickly as it was. It, this occupation of buildings spread like wildfire. So, um, there probably would have been, well, I don't know. I mean, were, one of the things people remarked on was that the Students for a Democratic Society, the kind of, uh, the big anti-war protest movement on campus was pretty disorganized. Uh, and, um, and chaotic undisciplined and a protesting group of black students in fact found them too undisciplined to protest with together which was an important subplot of what was going on. So they were ahead
1: using the bottle of Dr. King and things like that so they were further down the road? Well
0: the there was a time at when when um, uh, the first building was occupied and at some point the black students in that building uh, asked the white students to leave. They went and occupied another, other buildings. And uh, they did so because uh, in those days, the university was very concerned that if, if it was perceived that black students uh, were being say, manhandled or hit by police with clubs, there could be riots in Harlem down the, down the, the heights from Columbia. Um, it seems a little odd to think that, but that was, that was a real fear. On the other hand, there was a real fear among black students that if the police were provoked by wild white student behavior, insulting cops, uh, you know, sh- shouting things at, at people in a, in a rude fashion, that the physical uh, retaliation would be against them. And um, uh, it also, very interestingly, all of this was uh, playing out in miniature of larger political developments in the country. And a couple of years earlier, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which had been a big civil rights movement operating down south, um, and which I had, I had been on food drives as a high school student to you know, gather food to send down to communities in Mississippi where people were being cut off uh, from their uh, welfare benefits because they were trying to register to vote. Uh, SNCC, as it was called by its, by its initials had really thrown out the whites uh, in the late 60s and said, you go you go, have your own, fight your own battles. Um, this is a black struggle. And um, some of the white uh, political, extreme political agitation of the late 60s, at least at Columbia, uh, which was you know, not, not just a random place, it was influential, but some of it was uh, white political, um, radically inclined students uh, saying uh, you know okay we have to find our own we have to find our own revolution because the uh, uh, the blacks don't want us to be to be working with theirs so, by the way you know i say blacks 1968 was a turning point in that uh, we began to say the name of the black student organization on campus the student afro-american society it was novel. It was novel. We had all been accustomed to saying "negro" until that time. Sure, and one oh, of the shifts was linguistic. At that, yeah,
1: nineteen sixty-eight. You, I mean, I just got a magazine. I've been in California for a while, and it said nineteen sixty-eight. Oh yeah, and it seems to me that that it was people believe that that was such a pivotal year in this country. I mean, you say Columbia, and you know, certainly Dr. King and Robert Kennedy. And, you know, all the other things that just seem like now what? You know, yep. with Johnson backing out of the race, the Vietnam War.
0: George Wallace running pretty well in the presidential race. That's very true. Um, what I learned over the years uh, at NPR as I, as I did um, international reporting was that um, as much as I might try to, to understand the, the local or the American reasons behind 1968, which is one of these unusual years when so many things happen, uh, it was also happening globally. That is, uh, the intellectual side of the Polish uh, uprising against communism, Solidarity, this this labor federation that included both um, industrial workers and the the Polish intelligentsia. The the intelligentsia um, really came out of the 1968 movement at the University of Warsaw in March before before Columbia, and. Um, the protests, the issues are totally different. It was about censorship of a play by the the, the play was a famous Polish play that criticized Russians. There was a big student, uh, you know, protest, occupation of buildings, and uh, and arrests, and people. Uh, uh, a lot of intellectuals fled the country, and the, the the package of issues was very different. But something about the generation uh, that that I was part of. Um, was different and found the order of the world that they had inherited after the Second World War that their parents had, had created for them, something was spent and out of fuel by 1968. So Paris erupts into enormous protests led by students but also by workers. Uh, it uh, marks a uh, huge turning point in French post-war politics. In Mexico City, uh, we, uh, American media, tend to... Uh, memorialized the Olympics in Mexico City that year by the black athletes raising uh,
1: gloved fists. That's about all party. that's the only picture you'll probably on. see yeah. from that. Hundreds turnaround.
0: of Mexican students are killed in protests in Mexico City around the Olympics. Uh, it's a huge moment of, of um, youthful revolutionary activity. Something's going on that year. Uh, and in, in Czechoslovakia, uh, the, the Communist Party leadership it falls to people who were of a reformist uh, mindset. Uh, they told the censors to go home. Uh, they were going to create a new order, a socialism with a human face. Uh, the Prague Spring of 1968 was this time of famous liberalization and freedom, and maybe the Cold War would end in some kind of uh, uh, evolved, uh, peaceful way. And then in August, the Soviet Union leads an invasion of Czechoslovakia to crack down on that and destroy it. So, something something about 1968 uh, was a an enormous punctuation mark in uh, not just American but in world history. And I think that people uh, who were coming of age then uh, share that that sentiment that somehow um, some people claimed that you know we were all raised with the expectation of an instantly perfect world that had been created in the, after the boom of the A-bombs over Japan. And we were we were too easily frustrated by the lack of, uh, of perfection in the world, lack of the ideal. I don't, I don't know what it is. But uh, but I think that it happened first us that Colombia, in our country, because Colombia was in New York and the most global city in, in the country and, and the one where we felt... We were more likely to feel the same winds of change that were affecting uh, other places in Europe, and, and who knows where else? Uh, it was, there was a um, the summer after the strikes, I uh, they kept us on at the station. We got work study jobs, and we broadcast the hearings of a commission that had been formed to investigate what had just happened at Glenn. the university, and panelled a commission. The chairman of the commission was a Harvard law professor who had been. Solicitor General under JFK. I'd never heard of him at the time, but I became very impressed with him. His name was Archibald Cox. Oh, he's later the special Watergate prosecutor who is uh, famously fired on the Saturday night ma- massacre during the Nixon era. I was going to
1: school here when that happened. Really? I remember that.
0: Yep. Well, Cox did a very good job of uh, of his commission, uh, su- supervising a commission that wrote a narrative of what had happened uh, in the spring of 68 at Columbia. But there were moments in their report when they contrasted uh, the way Columbia operated, its lack of any student government, the uh, fairly uh, 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 lax uh, system of student advising, all kinds of discontents in student life, and contrasted it with Harvard, uh, which was the uh, you know seemed to be more in tune with their students. The next year, Harvard had a very similar kind of protest. I mean, it happened there in 1969. So. Uh, so Something was at work in, in, in my generation, and um, I still can't fully explain it, so,
1: which is... That yeah, I, I, I agree. It was just that Something Happening Here song came out. Remember, there's something happening here, and that was kind yeah. of the yeah. uh, song of the decade in many ways. Yeah. You hear it every time you hear the Buffalo Springfield, yeah. that song begin. It's like something mm-hmm. happening here, yeah, and yeah. you felt that.
0: Well, you know, between the Vietnam protests and the civil rights movement, this was what this was the I think the biggest thing, which is um, uh, it had been evident, uh, certainly to a lot of people who were not southerners in the U.S. and a lot of young people who were, that a system of racial segregation was wrong, and that uh, you know uh, the the army had been desegregated in the Truman era, or whatever, and we're just. Uh, the schools were supposedly desegregated after 1954, so by 1968 you're getting what um, you know political scientists I think spoke of as a revolution of rising expectations. It, it wasn't so much that life was worse than it had been uh, 20 years earlier, and hence people were protesting against it. It was that uh, life was better, but it was supposed to be even better than that. You know, it was supposed to be we were supposed to be making a lot more progress. And I think that um, those kind of sentiments, in their own odd way, uh, were felt in Warsaw and Prague as, as well
1: at the same time, in Paris. That's Robert Siegel, retired host of National Public Radio's All Things Considered. Adam Shepard is with us, and he is the co-founder and CEO of Eight Ninths, an industry leader in strategy, design, and development of cutting-edge virtual, augmented, and mixed reality. Before we jump into what that is all about, I asked Adam first, how did he come up with the name Eight Nines for his enterprise?
2: We named our company after the hidden fraction of an iceberg. Eight ninths of an iceberg hidden below the water, and for us, that's a uh, a good guiding light for the things we are most curious and interested about, which are emerging technologies.
1: And I see that you worked in Microsoft for something called Live Labs under. Ray Ozzie and a guy by the name of Bill Gates. I haven't heard of Bill. Yes, <laughs> but uh, I'm—I I have. I guess I've read some things about him. I think he's going to do well at some point in his life. But uh, he really—he really could apply himself. I'm sure. Yeah, just more focus, and maybe if he read my book, you know, maybe he would really be more successful. But uh, <laughs> Live Labs,
2: what—what what was that about? Live Labs was really designed to very quickly take new research. Uh, partner those those top uh, computer science researchers with hand-picked engineers and create uh, proof of concepts and technology previews that we could get feedback from people to really help hone our focus on what should we focus on from a product direction moving forward. And it grew from just a handful of people to a couple hundred people through its lifetime, and we had some tremendous success with some pretty uh, interesting technologies such as Photosynth. Uh, Photosynth was a a technology preview where we could take a large number of just standard digital images you might take on your phone or with a digital SLR. Photosynth would analyze all of the different uh, components, the features of that image, and compare those photos against one another in order to almost assemble a giant 3D puzzle that you could navigate and zoom around.
1: I read that you also have something called
2: augmented
1: and mixed reality. Could you define what that is?
2: Because this is a new industry, there's kind of new nomenclature and terms that the industry are kind of solidifying around. But the best way to think of it is virtual reality, you're completely immersed. You're not able to see the uh, the physical environment that you're in. It's kind of a little bit like wearing a diving mask. With augmented reality, we're talking about things a little bit more similar to Google Glass. It's you're providing context and an overlay of information um, that's enhancing your view of the real world. But you're able to almost look through um, a pair of glasses and see 2D information overlaid on on that environment. Mixed so reality. essentially, you're
1: looking you're looking at something like a, a chair or something, and that chair is yeah. really there but then you say augmented around it is some of these principles.
2: Exactly, exactly. And and typically they're there to provide additional help or context. It could be you look at a restaurant and it comes up with a Yelp review of, of uh, you know how many stars that restaurant has. Or you might look up at the night sky and uh, be able to see uh, different stars and the constellations they're part of. Mixed reality is getting to a place of actually projecting three-dimensional objects that you're able to view through your, your headset. You're seeing the physical world as well as these holographic objects and you're able to interact with them.
1: How would this affect myself and, and the consumer going forward or a business person. Do you have any ideas to share on that level?
2: And the next revolution is likely to be this this shift towards virtual and augmented reality as part of our everyday lives. Um, you know, uh, cameras are really the most popular feature of our phones today. And what Facebook and Google have done is they have um, are essentially enhancing the artificial intelligence behind um, the, the camera view of your phone and looking for features in real time and providing information around what you're seeing. So it could be you're in a store, uh, you pick up a, uh, uh, maybe a gardening tool at Home Depot, and it comes up with reviews of that gardening tool and where, where you can purchase it, what the different options are. Um, uh, basically being able to recognize objects and scenes in an environment and provide additional information, even without using a headset, this is just using your phone. And uh, if you think about how Google has done a fantastic job of indexing all the digital content in the world on the World Wide Web, um, really they are take it to the next level by how do we index the physical world? You know, you're at an airport and uh, you're trying to figure out which gate you need to head to next, and you have arrows uh, pointing you in exactly the right way. So,
1: You know, one thing I read about HoloLens uh, a couple years ago, and it was an article that really just changed the way i was thinking about a lot of things and it had to do with i believe staging let's say selling a house and the house was empty and you could virtually put the furniture in and how it would look even though the entire home doesn't have a stick of furniture in it is something. that's where i look Mm -hmm. at something as just being so what a great application and and those sorts of
2: things that's that's exactly right. And, and we're in discussions with a number of interior design companies and furniture manufacturers about exactly that kind of scenario. You know, oftentimes there's tens of thousands of options. If you think about every finishing, every furnishing, every different way these things can be configured, um, having a showroom of all of that uh, uh, furniture is just really not possible. But in a virtual environment, whether it's virtual or augmented reality, you could put on a headset, uh, see the spot exactly where your couch, new couch is going to go and browse through hundreds of options, um, interacting with both your voice, changing colors, changing fabrics, um, making sure the sizing is exactly right without even having to pull out a uh, measuring tape.
1: Well, I guess we'll just have to all go forward together into this brave new world of technology, I have been talking to Adam Shepard, co-founder and CEO of Eight Nines, a company with big plans, and I'm sure it is going to affect all of us at some point, if not already. That's all the time we have for this edition of Voices of Experience. My thanks to Robert Siegel and Adam Shepard for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Voices of Experience airs at 4.30 on Tuesdays and again 8.30 a.m. Wednesday mornings. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. If you would like to talk about anything, you can call me at 206-459-5536 Perhaps you have a suggestion for a future topic that you would like to have covered, or maybe you want to be a guest on the show. I am wide open to that possibility. That number is 206-459-5536. Have a great rest of the week.